Hey, everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Hey, man, let's go back to the late 80s, early 90s. Reagan made it hip to be an American again. It was cool to be a young conservative. We had this wild governor's race in the state of Texas, and I was a political junkie. We had five great candidates, but I saw a commercial from somebody I'd never heard of, Clayton Williams. He was an oil and gas guy, telecom executive, swashbuckler, full of life. He dominated the Republican primary. And man, I can't tell you how much I wanted to be Clayton Williams at that moment. So it was a real treat in my investment banking days back at Stevens, where I got to look at a couple of deals with Clayton Williams, got to meet him, got to swap stories with him, became pretty good friends with his CFO, Mel Riggs. So guys, if you're listening to this podcast, that's great. But if you can get over to YouTube and actually watch this podcast, you're in for a treat. Mel Riggs was gracious enough to sit down with me in Clayton Williams' office, which is as it is the last day he went in there. It's got his memorabilia, the green carpet. It was pretty amazing to be in that office, get to share stories about Clayton Williams with Mel Riggs. And then in what is just the ultimate treat of treats, Clayton's widow, Modesta, was down there. She showed us around pictures, and she told me a story that she believed Barbara Bush had a crush on Clayton Williams. I said, Modesta, there's no way. She showed me four photos. I am here to tell you, Barbara Bush had a crush on Clayton Williams, just like we all do. How did y'all meet? Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of a, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a friend, her brother had adopted a baby boy out in El Paso. So we decided we needed to go celebrate, of course, you know. And we went to this little cafe. It's a Mexican food uh, cafe. And this guy from Fort Stockton would come in every Thursday night and sing mariachi songs. So we thought, that's what we'll do. We go listen to that guy from Fort Stockton sing. And we got there, and there he was, <laughs> singing away. And so he finished his song, and he kind of eyed me, and I looked at him, and sparks flew. And he came around to our table, and, and we spent the night together that night. <laughs> but it was clean. <laughs> I think if it had been singing in English, I would have thought he was nearly as cute. <laughs> hey, everybody. Chuck Yates here. This is really cool. We're coming to you from Clayton Williams' office, and I'm so lucky to have Clayton's former CFO, Mel Riggs, with me. Hey, Mel. Chuck, good to see you. So how'd you meet Clayton? How'd you get here? In 1984, I was uh, working here in Midland. I was a controller for another company. Oil prices were starting to plummet, and I could tell that the company was probably going to go through some very difficult financial times. So I was uh, kind of thinking about a, a change in a career, and I picked up the Midland paper one day, and on the front page there was an announcement, a story about Clayton Williams, and he was going to start this telecommunications company. And I thought, that's exactly where I need to be. And so I started from there, really just trying to figure out how to get in the door. The grandfather came to Texas in 1866, came to Fort Stockton in 88. I was born Alpine in 31. I've had a great life being in the West. 
My dad had a small ranch, but I took to it. And, uh, but also, I learned I need, if I want to buy more ranches, I better get in the oil business, which I did. I had good luck. So where did he get his start? He grew up in Fort Stockton, Texas. He was raised uh, by some strong, uh, you know, he had a a great mother and his dad, and he was always told to be productive by his his parents. His grandfather had been, uh, uh, had migrated to Texas in the 1800s. He was a surveyor and a lawyer. And and then his uncle, J.C. Williams, he worked for, for Texan, or really Texaco, but he was also an intelligence officer in China during the Flying Tigers era, where you had the volunteers, the guys from the U.S. that volunteered to get in the Chinese Air Force and help them stave off the Japanese when the Japanese were being imperialistic towards China pre-World War II. Well, his uncle was one of the intelligence officers working with General Chenault, who was running that program, that whole deal. So these people had seen a lot of the world. So he's getting a lot of exposure from his relatives that had, were doing some pretty interesting things. And you kind of grow up with that kind of influence. It, uh, it kind of propels you on to do something big on your own. Right. You know? Yeah. And he loved agriculture. He, he told me that when he was in high school, he was actually playing football and then also cotton farming on the side. I mean, he was, work, he was always a hard worker, physically hard worker. So he, uh, he goes off to A&M and uh, going to get an ag degree. He said when he went to A&M, he basically spent most semesters trying to plan his, the time when he was going to quit. It was a military school, and, and it was, he, was, he was homesick, and it was just dismal. There were no girls in, at A&M at the time, no women there. And so he, he said every semester he was just planning on quitting. And he said he just kept planning until it was too late to quit. A&M football, he loved it, and all of these are game balls that... Uh all the people, all the players signed to him. So he got his his degree and then he, he was in the army. His army time came right at the end of uh, the Korean conflict. So he said basically the army days were a lot of boredom, you know, didn't have much to do and just buying time, trying to figure out what am I going to do. That's when he did a lot of Churchill reading. He said he got this Reader's Digest, evidently published a, a large volume of works of uh, Winston Churchill. So he said he spent a lot of time just reading those and between that and some hijinks with one of his buddies from high school that was in the army with him, they, um, you know, they kind of passed the time. And so he was working tables at a uh, restaurant in a, in a mineral wells or someplace like that as a waiter. He was trying to save some money. He was married, had a young daughter, Kelvy. Clayton, no matter what he does, he's going to do it with exuberance. And he's a waiter. And he's trying to get the best tips he can get, so he's really laying it on and everything. And some guy tells him, he goes, you should sell life insurance. You're, you've got a personality. You can sell life insurance. And so early on, that's what he was going to do. He was going to go back home to Fort Stockton, and he was going to get in the life insurance business. And he did. He did that for a while and pretty much probably sold everybody that he could in town. It was a small town. And he said one day he was kind of walking down the street. He sees one of his friends coming down the street, and he said just before they got close he said that his friend kind of crossed and he and he said that's when he realized i gotta get in another business <laughs> everybody was running from him because this is the most persistent life insurance salesman you could ever imagine oh, and uh so he became a notary public and he had signed documents at the bank you know transaction leases and stuff so he was called to the bank to sign his signature you know notarize a bunch of documents and he realized there's something going on here with Big dollars are changing hands. There's a there's this oil and gas lease, and he knew the the rancher that owned the 
the minerals or whatever that was doing the leasing. And then, and then there was this company that was Gulf or Humble or somebody. And that's when he realized there's something to this that I can get in business doing this. I can I can represent landowners in some manner, you know, do something like that. Because he started his career, I believe, and kind of decided to go out on his own in 1957. And he had this book. It was called The Greatest Gamblers. This, this uh, lady had written it. It just talks about the oil industry and all the great, you know, the Sid Richardsons and all the people that, you know, had had been the discovered the big fields. And so that was kind of like his Bible. He basically self-taught himself the business. You started this phone mess. I'm Clady Williams. Our company, Claydesta Communications, has put together the finest technical folks available. We're building you a new digital long-distance system. We're not riding anybody's coattail. This is our own network, and it's going to be a state-of-the-art system. Our team can handle all your communications anywhere, anytime, and do it for less money. We'll help you clean up this mess. You know, it's interesting because when you and I have talked about Clayton Williams, you've almost said his story is the story about America. Businesses he started, oil and gas, telecom. So walk us through life with Clady starting in 1984. I mean, it was an interesting time in telecom. Clady was starting a new company. Things were getting really tough in the oil and gas industry. So he's starting this company at a time when the long distance was being deregulated. It was a very competitive environment nationwide, and uh, it kind of opened the door eventually for the internet and so forth. We went from analog to digital, and we were caught in that wave. Ultimately, I wound up selling it to MCI, right? We sold to a company called uh, ATC, and it was a public company that shortly thereafter uh, merged with WorldCom, which had acquired, later acquired MCI. So when when did you sell the telecom? We sold the company... uh, in 19, I believe it was in 1989. We were really kind of uh, at a point where we needed to uh, take the company public or do something. We, we were, were pretty much tapped out. As, as you recall, the late 80s, the price of oil plummeted to a pretty low level. And uh, we were running out of uh, uh, capital. We were starting to cash flow the company, but to grow beyond where we were, it was going to take a, a, a massive amount of money. And Clayton didn't really want to take the company public. And at that time, he was not really going to, you know, everybody, he didn't think he was a public guy. And so he, uh, we, we uh, decided to go sell, sell the company. It was a uh, entrepreneurial journey. And that was just Clayton, again, starting something he didn't do nothing about. But he, he understood that if you provided a good service and quality that you could, you could sell it. That was his theme. So you sold the company, and then did you join the oil and gas company, or how did you get back? No, no, initially we sold the company, and I got sold along with the company. My job initially was to go out and find other companies to buy. And so I worked with one of my colleagues, uh, who had also worked for Clayton for a long time, and we went around the country looking for opportunities for ATC. We did make a couple of acquisitions. And then a few months, uh, I guess in the latter part of... uh, 1989, I got a phone call from the, the guy that was Clayton's CEO at the time, Jamie Winkle. And Jamie said, uh, why don't you come back and work for us? He said, I, you know, they thought they had their problems kind of worked out, you know. Uh, and he he said, we're going to be, and they had a, some acreage in New Mexico, kind of a field they'd bought. And and I'm sitting in here at this in this building, and, and my, my role was going to change. I was going to go be moved to San Antonio. And I was going to run the Southwestern division for this telecom company. Well, I had a young daughter that was just becoming a teenager, and I didn't really want to uproot her. So I made a decision based on that. It turned out to be the right decision because then ultimately that company was was sold uh, shortly after. And so you come back to, to Clayton Williams and 
what does Clady have going on then? Well, it was, it was very interesting because when I got back here, when I came back, he suddenly decides he's going to run for governor. <laughs> Mel, so Mel come back. By the way, yeah, uh, he's going to run. He's running for governor, and that really kind of came from the telecom exposure that he had. He got a lot of name ID out of that, and he got exposed to things going on in Austin. We were we were trying to make a statement about the deregulation of AT and T, and Clayton said the best way to do that is you got to do something kind of outrageous. And his decision, and so he decided to ride a horse up the steps of the down at the, in the Capitol and. And they're slippery. One thing leads to another. Somebody, somebody said, Clinton, you need to run for, for governor. And it, he goes, hell no, I'm not going to do that. And you just said that in passing, but then later on, it sort of germinated and other people grabbed onto it. And the next thing, he's, he's running. And here is Governor Clements and Ms. Clements. And we were all horseback and they were buying cattle from us. Clements really helped talk Clady into running for governor. He yeah. liked Clady. And Clady really wanted to be like Clements. You know, he was tough. He he was a Clements was in the oil business, a driller, a drilling company. And um they really hit it off through the years and he said, Yeah Clady, you can do it. You know, you'd be a good one. We went to Pakistan in eighty nine to decide whether we were going to, he was going to go for governor or not. And uh, we actually went up to Chitral, which is right across the border from Afghanistan. What did he say when he was thinking about it? Did y'all, was he worried? Was he? No, no. You know, whether, you know, he could manage it with business and would he make a good governor and, I knew he would. Oops. Mm-hmm. Who's been good? Yeah. Sorry, I still get emotional. He would have really made a good one. A fun one. <laughs> Lots of fun. So what year was that? That was, uh, okay, it was in about 89. Okay. Yeah. So that's 89, and he ran, who was in the primary against it? Was Kent Hans? Kent Hans, Jack Rains, who's a very, uh, you know, uh, prominent businessman, uh, Tom Luce. Uh, that's right, and, that's and, right. And everybody thought Clayton had no chance, he had no experience, uh, that, that there's no way he can compete against, especially some some people that were already politicians. Right. And, uh, and he won it. He, he, he won it without a runoff amongst yeah. a strong group. I mean, that was a really strong group. Yeah. I mean, I forget. They, they were all very well qualified. I've told you this every time we talk about Clayton running for governor. I mean, the tele, the television commercial, uh, he did this whole setup about he was going to take kids' driver's licenses if they, <laughs> if they were drinking and driving. And then the tagline was, and if they don't like that, I'm going to teach them the joys of busting rock. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We're really going to win this war on drugs. We've got to attack it on all fronts. I start early. Beginning in kindergarten, I teach the three Ds. Don't do drugs. Teenagers, don't get marijuana. I'll take away their driver's license. And if they keep doing drugs, I'll put them in a boot camp. Military discipline, drug counseling, and I'll introduce them to the joys of busted rocks. Somebody tells you we can't win this war, you tell them they hadn't met Clayton Williams. He was always a big supporter of law enforcement and, and, and maintaining order. But he was his free spirit too, though. He he kind of 
was on the edge a few times himself. The Texas Rangers, he really, really loved and respected the Texas Rangers. They, They loved him, too. I mean, he took the world by storm when he ran for governor. He I did. mean, he was, I remember him being on crossfire with, uh, I forget who the, the liberal was, but the conservative was Robert Novak. Mm-hmm. And he just crushed that. And I mean, just blew away, literally is as good a race ever in the Republican primary. I mean, ran away with it. Like you said, I mean, a great field of candidates. And he won it with that. I mean, wasn't it 52, 53%, something like that. Yeah, I think the margin of, uh, and the, if you totaled up all the votes, it was a 200,000 vote difference between the two of them. It was razor thin. And then I think the press just got a hold of him. Well, he contributed to the press. Uh, he fed a yeah. lot of, you know, he, Clayton uh, had this uh, kind of the darling of the party, the Republican Party, because of the way that all worked out. And he was very comfortable with the press. And he, 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 he really kind of felt like, well, they were sort of like friendly to him. Uh, and he could say anything, you know, and 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 I think he found out uh, the hard way that uh, that you know once he became the candidate versus the Democratic candidate, and it was a think you know Ann Richards right. was a, a formidable candidate really too. Uh, he, you know, it, it, the game changed, and I don't think he recognized the shift in in the, in the way the game is going to be played. Yeah, I think that I think the media likes to build you up and then and then then take you down. Wound up losing to Ann Richards, but in a weird sort of way, that paved the way for George W. Bush. Yeah, it did. It did pave the way. He did bring a lot of people to the Republican Party that had not been in the party before uh, from different parts of Texas. So he and, and Bush, I think George W. has acknowledged that, that, that Clayton kind of did pave the way for him. Ultimately, At the time, though, he was running for governor. We were in a sort of a financial crisis with his companies that, you know, Clayton was able to, to deal with all this stuff. But we had uh, companies that were struggling because of the downturn of the oil and gas industry. We had a bank with issues. We had a lot of problems. And that's where I ended up spending a lot of my time, myself and, a, and a, my colleague who passed away in 2010, Paul Latham. He was the uh, legal count, chief legal counsel, but he and I were pretty much workout guys for a number of years to kind of get things right with Clayton's companies, and uh, well, he was running for governor. Right, exactly. <laughs> for governor. Was we got this. With Clayton, he was always an adventure. Believe me, it's yeah. one thing I've loved about working for him. You just, you know, you got put into position into situations, and you just have to figure out how to deal with it. So he comes back from yeah. uh, from running for governor. You're here. Uh, when does Clayton Williams go public? <clears throat> well, the oil and gas that's company. A, a great that's, question. Yeah. Um, you know, we had gone through a process to shut down companies. He had a safari company in Africa. We had to shut it down. Uh, he said he got a 20% return, which meant he got 20% of his money back. back. <laughs> that's what he said. It was a pretty much a legendary uh, deal in Africa, though. Most of the, having gone over there later on myself, the professional hunters in Africa still talk about it even today. It was, he had such a big concession. But he had mud companies and pipe, a pipe company. He had uh, a bank that was uh, not in good financial uh, health. And so we started working through all these different problems. And, and over time, we had them, you know, over the next couple of years, we kind of got everything kind of stabilized. We still had a lot of debt, though. And uh, it was primarily oil company related debt. We looked at list different options on how to refinance the company. We talked to like the guys at NCAP had just started their business. And they were, but they were, you know, loaning money, not putting, there was no equity. 
I started noticing that there was these small companies going public in the DJ Basin in Colorado, Garrity Basin. There's a number of them that were starting to get, talk about going public and they were small. And I thought, wow, that, you know, that's my, maybe that's an option, a way to raise some capital, get some equity, pay down debt. And so I have a friend that, uh, that I'd known from early days in Midland, uh, Jay Allison, who runs Comstock Resources. Right. And Jay had just kind of gotten his company public, uh, not that long ago, and it was it was basically a reverse merger into a, a a shell, a public shell. And I called Jay up. He said, uh, "Yeah, you, you can do it." And our uh, our auditor told us he kind of laughed at us when we told him we were thinking about taking the company public. And he goes, "You'll never get that done. It's impossible." Sidney Clayton's not a public guy, and so I called Jay again, and Jay said, uh, "Hey, you need to call this guy, Arthur Anderson. Talk to him. He'd worked on Jay's with with Comstock." And so I called this this individual and I told him the story. And I said, the problem is, too, we've got three different oil companies, really, that own interest in all these different assets. So we don't really just have one company. So it's sort of complex. How do you take that public and what do you take public? And the guy said, let me come see you. So he flies down here from Arthur Anderson, comes down here to see us, spends the day. We talk about everything. And as he was in at the end, he, he was leaving. And I said, well, what do, you, what, what do you think? He said, we can get it done. And I said, well, how are we going to do it? And he goes, what are we going to do? And he goes, we're going to create the best little oil company that never existed. So basically what we did, we came up with a new co that would never become a real company unless the, the IPO occurred, actually happened. And then we selected the right assets to go into that new co that would go into that company. And we audited it. We audited it historically, you know, gone three years back or whatever. Right. And so that's, you know, it was, uh, it took a... Uh, I think we launched our IPO in 1991, and, and it was going okay. It was a tough sale. It was an Austin Chalk story. We were drilling in Pearsall, of all things. And we were making big wells, but unfortunately, the wells had no reserve life. I mean, they were just, right. were just these big fractures. We were producing a lot of oil as we uh, drilled, and we were, had live oil systems, all kinds of technology, trying to keep them some blowing up on location. And there were fires in some cases with some other companies. So we were doing that. And on the last day of our road show, I'll never forget, we were in Denver. It was Payne Weber was the bank. We were doing a, a presentation to their sales force there in Denver. And uh, all of a sudden during the presentation, the salespeople start leaving the room and we go, and there's, everybody's all stressed out. And there was a, a, something that HW, uh, Bush 41 was president. Some comments were made about interest rates in the market window closed. And we were done. All that effort is like over. There was no way to go public. And so uh, we had to come back and regroup. Yeah, so we came back and we had to hold, the, hold it all together. We needed to show some continual activity, but we were pretty much out of money. And so what we did, we, uh, Clayton rallied together a bunch of vendors and we, we came up with this vendor financing program with, with all of our vendors and uh, a big group of them to finance these chalk wells. And and we uh, squeezed a little bit more money out of the banks, you know, because the banks were, you know, they were so far into this deal, they thought, well, we got to get these it's guys public somehow. So when we went public, you know, he wanted to make sure he was firmly in control. He did not want to sell stock. For a lot of years, he took a salary in stock. When when the things were really lean in our company in the early days, early years, he didn't get paid uh, a salary. His, his salary was paid in stock. That's the way he wanted it because we needed the cash. You know, I wish I could have done it. But right. unfortunately, it's hard to buy shoes and groceries with stock. Right. So, uh, kids through but school. he was able. You know, he he just believed he believed in what we were doing, and and he was willing to do. Uh, and he just wanted more of it. 
Clayton had, during the 80s, because he had built this conglomerate of, of companies and, and, and things, he, he owed, he personally owed about a half a billion dollars. Personally signed all the notes, all, everything was collateralized. And he dug his way out of that. It took a long time. He had to sell Clay John Gas, which was a gas transmission and, and processing company. Yeah, had a lot of cash flow and everything, but he sold that to two guys that it was uh, Bill Simon and a guy named Ray Chambers. It's called Westray. They were a company, LBO, leveraged buyout deal. And I don't think they put any equity in. They just were able to, this is where Clayton, I think he, he realized that there was something missing in, in, in his business world that these guys bought his company. It was probably his best company. And they did it without putting any equity up because what they did is they just took the management team and put them on the road and they went out and, and, and raised some long-term debt, some bonds. But they used Clayton's people and used his assets. And so it was kind of a classic. You got a long-term asset with short-term debt on it. But anyway, we paid our debt down to about, we paid it basically to zero. So the first time in a long time, we were debt-free. I had a banker one time at IPAA. We we made a company presentation. I was walking off kind of the stage and getting ready to leave. And this banker comes up to me and and they're one of our key banks. And he said, you know, there's only like two or three people that I'd loan money to on a handshake, but Clayton's one of them. His deal was, I'm going to pay all this debt back. And he made tremendous sacrifices to you know, to pay a half billion dollars of debt back. I mean, he had to sell a lot of assets, things he loved, but he was in and whittled down his whole kind of empire to get it done. But he did it, but we paid everything. He was really proud of that. I mean, he, you know, he did it. He didn't walk away from any debt, just paid it all. He just, worked, he just kind of worked his way through it. And yeah. It was painful. Yeah. It was really painful, but, uh, but we did it. So very few people on this planet have ever been as charismatic as yeah, Clayton no Williams. Doubt. I mean, yeah. You know, would come in, slap you on the back, shake your hand, and yeah, it was hard not to be friends with him. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, he was. He could work a crowd better than anybody I've ever seen. He had a feel for people that was pretty amazing. Everybody that interacted with him felt like they were the only person that he was, you know, really interested in. I mean, he just was able to do that. It was. It's amazing. Uh, he had that knack. And like you said, I think we talked about earlier when he walked in a room, the place just kind of lights up. And this, this is the Texas governor, White. What are, Mark White. Mark yeah. White. All right. We were in Houston at a Brangus uh, show and auction. And this is Fairchild. Is Morgan Fairchild. Morgan Fairchild. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And then the other lady that was here, too, she was a uh, Wonder Woman. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, Linda, Linda Carter. 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 Yeah. yeah. So she was there, and so Clady was <laughs> trying to get her attention, you know. And so here comes Mark White, and Mark White is kind of getting her attention. And so Clady puts a napkin over his head and tells Mark White that he is fired as governor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Lordy. I remember one time we, uh, after we got public, we were invited to go to the Arthur Anderson Energy Conference. He just thought it was going to be some kind of, I said, what's the accounting firm? He thought it was some accounting deal. He right. didn't really understand what, I kept trying to explain to him, no, this is going to, there's going to be a lot of people there. And, you know, so we get to Houston and it's in the, at the gallery in the Weston. And so we go in there and uh, we're getting coffee and stuff before the thing starts. And Clayton's kind of looking around and he's kind of realizing, hey, there's some pretty important people in this room, you know, he just kind of, and he's not prepared at all. He, he had no presentation, nothing. So 
it's time for us to go in. They open the doors and we all go in and we're going to sit and get to watch some Ken Lay or somebody else talk first and all these different people. And Clayton's sitting and it was crowded. And I remember when, when Clayton goes to the door to the ballroom and that door opens up and there's this crowd. I, he realized, I, I saw him kind of flinch, kind of like, whoa, this is a big deal. Right. And then this young Arthur Anderson accountant comes up to him and he says, uh, Mr. Williams, can I get your slides and I'll, I'll set them up for you. And Clayton just looked at him. And he goes, no slides, just bullshit. He's stunned. He's you know, a young accountant. He was right. just like stunned. So Clayton sits down and I, I had to sit behind him because there was a big crowd. So there was only a few seats. There were, everybody's grabbing seats. I'm sitting there and I can tell he's kind of starting to fidget and he's not prepared. And so I see him kind of then I'm watching him. He's, he's ruffling through his uh, pockets. and He pulls a little sliver of paper out, little thing. And then he's He's looking for a pen, and finally he asks the guy next to him, hey, do you have a pen or something? And the guy gives him a pen, and he starts, like, making his, writing his speech. Oh, really? I can see him writing little notes to himself, you know, like he's writing oh, a speech, great. like what he was going to say. And he, uh, and so when it was his turn, he gets up there, and he, he just blows it away. A presentation is just totally impromptu, that, uh, and he, he, it, was, it was amazing. How was Clady like on the road? I remember on the very early days of the road show, uh, it was kind of rocky because he was kind of like not sure if he really wanted to be in, be there. And then he's having to deal with these these really young uh, fund managers that that ask him right. questions he thought were dumb questions. There were a couple of times, several times where he would uh, do something kind of funny. And uh, I remember one time we were sitting with this guy. I think it was in Boston, and, and it was kind of odd because the guy had a uh, laptop computer that he was typing everything we set into. And Clayton was sitting right beside him, kind of trying to talk to him. And Clayton liked you to, he liked eye contact. He wanted you to right. look at him and listen to him. And this guy was just typing the whole time. So I'll never forget, I'm sitting there and all of a sudden Clayton's just getting really annoyed with that laptop thing. So he just, and, and he didn't really know what a laptop really was, or, <laughs> right. but he figured out that if I shut the lid on that thing, <laughs> it'll stop him. And so he just kind of reaches over and pushes his, the top of the laptop down. And the guy pulls his fingers out, and just kind of like stares at the, his computer for a minute. You're like, oh, that's great. What just happened? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way it was. And that guy, I, and I thought I left that meeting thinking, oh, this guy, I we blew that one. No, they bought shares. That yeah, was, right. yeah. Well, I will tell one, one other story I've got to tell about Clayton on the road show. I just thought of this. We were in, in London. We go to lunch with these investors in their offices and, and they, they serve wine and we're kind of going, I don't know if we can drink any of this wine because we got a long day ahead of us, you know. Right. So we're sitting there and there's this one guy, this British guy that uh, Clayton starts talking about the technology, about water fracking wells. And this guy just kept looking at him like he didn't believe it. He couldn't get the concept. And Clayton kept trying to explain it to him. They got into a pretty good argument. And so what happens is I'm sitting there and I'm watching Clayton. He's getting really uh, unhappy. And pretty soon Clayton's like, you know, standing up. And he's then he's almost like leaning over. He's going to go across the table and grab this guy, you know. And they're getting into it pretty good. And then I'm kind of sitting there thinking, this meeting's, we're done. As I'm sitting there, I'm watching Clayton. And he, you know, and he was in the governor's race. And he had really nice clothes. He dressed really well. They got him all dressed up for the governor's race. So he had those clothes. And he had this expensive tie on. And I happened to, and it was blue, but I happened to notice that he had somehow gotten that tie perfectly soaking in a glass of red wine. Because <laughs> really? he was arguing with this guy. And and, and they're going back and forth. And I'm just kind of looking sitting there looking at looking at that tie float. I just watched it bob up and down that <laughs> glass of wine. <laughs> and it, it, it turned out, you know, 
And Clay never even he he didn't even he never he never even he just thought he had a two tone tie or something, <laughs> two something different colors at the end. He didn't he didn't ever even thought about it. But later on though, Clayton in in that investor suddenly the name Churchill came up. Right. And Clayton starts talking about Churchill and the influence on him that Churchill you know he didn't know him obviously or anything, but he just had read so much and and they just bonded after that. I mean it was incredible. So he had the ability you know to kind of. If he was going to go after this guy, and the next thing you know, they're like best buddies drinking together later on that evening. And it was uh, this connection that they had with Churchill. Uh, I'm a ranch girl, born and raised on the ranch, and love being outside and you know, riding horses, and we'd ro- hunt rabbits and all that kind of stuff. But Clady really loved hunting, and he wanted me to go along with him, and I knew if I was going to be with him that I better learn how to hunt. But the first time I ever shot at a deer, I didn't even hit the mountain. So I had to, <laughs> I had to really start practicing. I think my wife, Modesta, you, you look at me and look at her, you tell I'm a pretty good salesman. <laughs> uh, you, we, did marry, you did marry up. There was no, no absolutely. About that. I got good eyesight. We have been pleased. Our hobby was hunting the mountain sheep. We've hunted the mountain sheep worldwide, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, everywhere. And in the big game, we've, we've had a lot of fun doing all. We became very much competitors. And I wanted to beat him, and he wanted to beat me. And there's several times that we didn't come back because he hadn't got a bigger animal than me. We were in Afghanistan in 1974, and we were riding yaks. Uh, up in the mountains, and we got sheep, our Marco Polo sheep, and there. And so I just kind of was talking about hunting and everything. And one of my daughters said, Mom, why did you go to Afghanistan and ride yaks with Daddy? I said, because he wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> so my whole deal of life has been, I'll follow you anywhere as long as I can, you know, Take my makeup kit and still be a lady. You know, so. uh, but riding yeah. axe was a little bit strange. But we've hunted Africa. We've hunted uh, Russia a couple of times. We've hunted China a couple of times. Nepal. One time we were on this mountain, and he and his guide were going this way, and my guide and I were this way, and we were going to leave our horses at the end of the day and climb up there and work that in and then I would get his horse and you know on that end of the mountain he'd get mine well we got to that end and he got to that end and he had horses and he rode back but when I got to that end they the horses were gone and we had to come <laughs> back so somewhere along the way, they didn't live up to their end of the bargain. Here was China. We were in China uh, in 1988. And here we go. Competition. Lady brought this one in. And then about three or four days later, I brought this one in. Oh, <laughs> it's still number one. Yeah. I like that. Uh-huh. Isn't that pretty? Quiet an animal. And as I said, that was my favorite picture of him right there. Which one was that? This one. Him laughing. He's in the Jeep, and he's just so tickled 
over something that is happening, and that's just Clady. <laughs> that's the best one. Huh? Yeah. And here he is singing with mariachis. That is so crazy. The photos make so much more sense now that I know the story. <laughs> and another one of those, uh, he was riding horseback, and we were trying to get the get him to ride the horse to a mark, get the cow on a mark, <laughs> everything to work. Well, about 10 times down the way, that horse would turn or the cow would turn, and finally they got the horse and the cow, and he jumped off his horse to say his line, and he said, Oh, blank. I've forgotten my line. <laughs> bleep, bleep. Oh, this is the There's the comes off the horse without missing a beat. That's pretty hard to do. Jump off a horse. <laughs> you have to do practice that several times. Yeah. <laughs> Jumping on a horse. Did he like me? Oh, yeah. He, he <laughs> Can't you tell? Yeah. I mean, come oh, on. Yeah. It's like, everybody get out of my picture here. You yeah. Know? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we're not painting the act. No, no, no. Probably was all over. Oh, no. He never saw a stage he didn't want to be on. That's exactly right. (laughs) Thanks, Mel and Modesta, for showing us around Clayton's office. The one thing I couldn't help but feel sitting in his office, looking at the memorabilia, the photos, was just the unbridled optimism that that man had. No matter how many times he failed, he got up came back, did it better than the last time. I know our industry's been in a tough spot the last few years, but if we can all conjure up a little bit of Clayton Williams in us, that's how we get through this.